This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, all. Welcome back to the Real Life Pharmacology Podcast. I'm your host, pharmacist Eric Christensen. Thank you so much for listening today. As always, go check out reallifepharmacology.com. Uh, if you subscribe to our mailing list, we've got a free 31-page PDF on the top 200 drugs. I get great comments on that resource. Uh, it's just a, an awesome, awesome resource if you're going through pharmacology classes, board exams. Just a great refresher on some of the most important clinical things uh, with the top 200 drugs. So you can get that absolutely for free. Um, simply an email will get you there. All right, the drug of the day today is ceftriaxone. Brand name of this medication is Rocephin. Uh, classification, obviously, it's an antibiotic. And with the ceph uh, beginning of the word there, obviously, this is going to be a cephalosporin. Now, remember, there's a bunch of different generations of cephalosporin. So there's first through the fifth now. And what you've got to remember is you, as you get to higher numbers, we get more and more coverage generally. Okay, that's a generality. Individual agents can vary um, from from drug to drug, but as you get to further generations, uh, you generally tend to get more coverage. With that said, ceftriaxone is a third generation cephalosporin, and it is definitely a workhorse. You see this one used a lot uh, in hospital type settings, mostly because it's not an oral agent; it's IM or IV mechanistically, how do these drugs work? Well, if you've memorized, uh, you know, the mechanism of action for uh, penicillin antibiotics, other cephalosporins, um, these drugs, or ceftriaxone specifically, binds to penicillin binding proteins, which prevents peptidoglycan synthesis. And if you remember that synthesis is critical for formation of bacterial cell walls. So simplifying that for you, uh, ceftriaxone and other cephalosporins uh, inhibit bacterial wall formation. Okay, that's basically how they work. Now, let's get into bacterial coverage. This is often a question on board exams, um, pharmacology exams. You know, what bacteria does ceftriaxone cover? So, like I mentioned, as you get to higher or later generations of cephalosporins, uh, you're going to tend to get more gram-negative coverage. And generally, we also keep the gram-positive coverage too. So ceftriaxone has a ton of different uses because it being kind of a later generation cephalosporin, we've got gram-negative coverage uh, as well as a lot of the common gram-positive pathogens as well. So uses, uh, community-acquired pneumonia is a big one, uh, can be used for things like complicated UTIs, osteomyelitis, joint infections, uh, skin and soft tissue infections, um, certain meningitis in various populations, uh, endocarditis, uh, gonococcal infections such as gonorrhea, 
um, which reminds me, pearls.com slash RLP has an excellent resource on sexually transmitted infections. Okay, So it's basically a chart that lays out uh, what are the most common sexually transmitted infections and what are the recommended treatments. And of course, ceftriaxone here, as I'm talking about, uh, is indicated uh, for gonorrhea. So again, pearls.com slash RLP. Uh, it's got a great chart on uh, breaking down the drugs of choice with uh, sexually transmitted infections based upon uh, the most recent guidelines from the CDC. So uh, go snag that for free once you create a free account. Um, absolutely a no-brainer. It's not going to cost you a dime there. So again, pearls.com slash RLP. Uh, so again, tons of different indications for ceftriaxone. Uh, that coverage, just summing up some of the bugs that it covers, so gram-positives, staph, and strep species. However, uh, there definitely is some resistant species in those. Uh, and particularly, I wanted to mention uh, MRSA, so that's methicillin-resistant staph aureus. Ceftriaxone does not cover MRSA. Okay, Very, very important uh, to remember that for sure. Uh, H-flu, MCAT, uh, Neisseria species I mentioned, Klebsiella, E. coli, so there's some of your, your gram-negative bugs. Uh, also, maybe some atypical pathogens uh, as well, so the bug that causes uh, Lyme's disease, so Borrelia species. Uh, again, lots of different coverage for ceftriaxone, which is why it can be used uh, for so many different indications. And one last one I did want to mention was Pseudomonas. So typically we don't use uh, ceftriaxone for Pseudomonas. Other uh, cephalosporins, uh, ceftazidime, cefepime, they both have anti-pseudomonal coverage and ceftriaxone doesn't, uh, isn't considered to have much uh, pseudomonal activity. So if you've got that type of infection, uh, you're likely going to want to shy away from ceftriaxone because it's likely uh, not going to work very well. Uh, administration IM, IV only. Uh, compared to other cephalosporins, uh, leaning in on the kinetics topic here, uh, it does have a little bit of a longer half-life. Uh, you think of a drug like uh, Keflex, for example, that has to be dosed pretty frequently. It's got a pretty short half-life in adults. Um, ceftriaxone does have a, a little bit longer half-life there. Uh, also has blood-brain barrier permeability, which I think I mentioned can be used for meningitis. So that definitely makes sense. That's definitely a good thing, obviously, if we have to uh, treat those types of infections for sure. All right, let's talk briefly on adverse drug reactions. So uh, first off, there is a risk with uh, calcium, part, uh, excuse me, not participation, precipitation. Um, and this may be a little bit higher risk in pediatric patients. And that can ultimately lead, this precipitation can ultimately lead to uh, kidney stones, uh, urinary sludge, acute renal failure, gallstones, pancreatitis. Um, so this is a potential issue. Another thing with ceftriaxone, it is on the kids list, um, especially um, neonates and very young kids. 
so the kids list, if, if you've never looked at it before, it's a good thing to, to Google. So it's kids drug list, um, basically potentially inappropriate medications in pediatric patients. So um, go check that out if you want a little more details on that. It's kind of analogous to the beers list, which is potentially inappropriate medications in geriatric patients. But uh, it's always a good little reference and, you know, can come up on various, uh, you know, pharmacology exams, board certification exams uh, throughout your career there. Uh, other than that, uh, precipitate, other um, potential adverse effects or risks with ceftriaxone. So using broad-spectrum antibiotics, obviously we're going to increase the risk for C. diff infections. Uh, that's important to note. Uh, rarer things, hemolytic anemia, hypersensitivity reactions, and kernicticus. Uh, not sure if my pronunciation is perfect on that, but um, basically elevated uh, bilirubin. And this is particularly problematic in neonates. Um, so that's definitely uh, a thing to, to pay attention to. And obviously, we'd avoid it if we've got a pre-existing uh, elevated bilirubin and in patients at high risk for elevated bilirubin. So what that elevated bilirubin can do is cause CNS um, damage or brain damage, potentially, if it gets too high. Uh, and that's a, a potential issue as well. So uh, definitely think about that um, in pediatric patients for sure. Um, and, you know, if we've got other options, ceftriaxone, um, in certain situations, we may steer clear of using that medication due to that risk-benefit analysis. Uh, some common adverse effects, as you could anticipate with most antibiotics, um, you know, and injectable antibiotics, so itching, irritation at the site, pain at the site, um, a flushing type reaction certainly can happen, especially with uh, the infusion or as the um, injection is, is going on. Uh, and GI upset, of course, can happen with antibiotics as well. They kind of can mess up that flora and, and change um, some things going on there. So with that said, let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll wrap up with drug interactions. If you're in the market for any board certification study materials like NAPLEX, BCPS, ambulatory care, geriatrics, psychiatric exam, and many more, go check out meded101.com slash store, S-T-O-R-E. In addition, we've got books, uh, study materials for exams on Amazon as well. Uh, in addition, we've got books for practicing clinicians on drug interactions, case studies, food drug interactions, and much, much more. So again, go support the sponsor, meded101.com slash store. All your purchases there go directly to support this podcast. All right, let's talk about drug interactions. So first one I wanted to mention was the IV calcium, you know, causing that precipitate. Okay, I discussed that a little bit further previously, um, but Paying attention to that, you know, in the acute care space, if we're using these medications together, there is that risk. Uh, acute renal failure risk, uh, particularly uh, when used in combination with aminoglycosides. So that's something to maybe be a little bit more cautious with. Uh, I can't say I see it too seldom where those drugs are used together because certainly with the gram-negative coverage, of aminoglycosides and the gram-negative coverage of ceftriaxone, there may be some overlapping uh, there as far as coverage. So again, don't see it used incredibly often together, but uh, at least uh, in theory, there's the, the risk there of increasing uh, 
uh, the risk for renal failure when using it on top of uh, an aminoglycoside. Uh, Probenicid, not a drug used very often at all. I can probably count the number of times on my hand uh, that I've seen it used in clinical practice. Uh, There is potential that it could raise concentrations of ceftriaxone. So something to think about, and and that's true for most of the uh, penicillin and cephalosporin antibiotics. Don't quote me on that, but I, I believe that's true for most of them. Uh, and then lastly, I wanted to mention warfarin. Uh, with, as with most antibiotics, uh, it can potentially um, raise the INR, increase concentrations, and also alter that flora and, and might impact uh, that vitamin A, K, excuse me, vitamin K um, creation by some of those vitamin K producing bacteria. So pay attention to INR as we're initiating uh, this medication in somebody on warfarin, which you're likely going to do in an inpatient setting anyway. All right. With that said, I'm going to wrap up the podcast for today. Hope you found some uh, critical clinical practice pearls. Uh, and if you do like the show, if you find it helpful, please leave a rating review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Also share us with friends, colleagues, maybe students you're precepting. Uh, help us grow this podcast and obviously expand the knowledge base of medications uh, to healthcare practitioners all throughout the world. Uh, If you want to reach me, mededucation101 at gmail.com. Otherwise, you can track me down on LinkedIn as well, Eric Christensen, PharmD, BCPS, BCGP. Uh, Support the sponsor, meded101.com slash store, S-T-O-R-E. And of course, go get that chart at pearls.com slash RLP on uh, sexually transmitted infections. Great resource there. All right, I'm going to wrap up the podcast for today. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a great rest of your day. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.